Hi, and welcome to the podcast Fiction on the Mind, where we take a look at how our minds perceive, interact with, and participate with fiction in all of its forms, and play with people, ideas, and entire worlds that may not actually exist. I'm the host, Tyler Gabbard, and joining me today is Dr. Jen William, our recently appointed head to the School of Languages and Cultures here at Purdue University. So, Dr. William, welcome to the show. Hi, Tyler. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's definitely a pleasure to have you here, for sure, because you've you've published so much in the field already, um, and I know that you have a lot coming out. You, you just had a book published very recently, just last year in 2017, titled Cognitive Approaches to German Historical Film, Seeing is Not Believing. Um, and then specifically in that publication, what we're looking at is some of the stuff that you've touched on in the fourth chapter about perspective taking. So what, what kind of research, apart from that very specific chapter, yeah. mm-hmm. what, what do you do? Well, my research is focused mostly on German literature and film of the 20th and 21st centuries. And for the past decade or so, I've been working in the field of cognitive literary studies and cognitive film studies, mm-hmm. um, especially concentrating on psychological principles such as theory of mind, conceptual blending, conceptual metaphor, perspective taking, of course, and, and empathy, and how all of these relate to literary and filmic narratives. So in particular, how cognitive psychology can help us understand the creation and reception of these cultural products. So these, these cognitive perspectives and everything, are, are you talking more of an approach to literature, or is this a field in itself, do you think? Just cognitive literary studies? That's a good question. I, in recent times, we've been talking more about the cognitive approaches to the humanities in general. Mm-hmm. So because when people mention cognitive psychology, they may be thinking more of the neuroscience and scientific aspects. But I'm trying to bring in cognitive principles into the humanistic type work that we do with studying literature um, and film. So you mentioned my most recent monograph, and for that I use popular German historical cinema as sort of a case study for the way that... Mm-hmm particular cognitive processes and psychological phenomena shape our viewing experiences. So then the topic for today is perspective taking. So this has roots in psychology, in social sciences. Um, so for you, what is perspective taking? Well, in a nutshell, Tyler, I would say that perspective taking is our ability as humans to see the world through the eyes of others, figuratively speaking, even when that view differs from our own. Or even when it contradicts our own experiences. So broadly speaking, perspective taking includes imagining what it's like to experience the world from the physical viewpoint of another person, as well as understanding the conceptual metaphorical viewpoint of other people, that is their thoughts and their their beliefs. And at a basic level, it requires the knowledge that other people see the world differently. And this is a knowledge we don't actually have at birth, but that develops in us as children. Perspective taking, sometimes is actually used synonymously with theory of mind. Um, Mm -hmm. These also need to be differentiated. Um, Theory of mind denotes humans' abilities and inclinations to determine what others are thinking and feeling. Perspective taking is part of that, and it's a contributor to the theory of mind process, a contributor to to empathy, but it's it's not the whole story. It helps us. Perspective Mm -hmm. taking um, helps us with these things, but it's not the whole the whole story. I, w- I would also um, direct our listeners to the episode dedicated specifically to theory of mind for, for further distinction um, between that and perspective taking, because you're right, they are very similar and they, they're very related as well. It's kind of difficult to, to fully separate it either is. of these. Yeah, it is. Yeah, thank you, Tyler. Perspective taking is a component of empathy. It's just not the whole the whole story and the mm-hmm. whole picture. Psychologist um, Nancy Eisenberg and her research group have stressed in their recent work that 
there are other cognitive processes that are involved in empathy beyond perspective taking and and then there are the interrelated affective components of empathy that you mentioned as well there's also the issue of mirror neurons that may facilitate mm -hmm. both empathy and perspective taking although the research is really not conclusive as to, um, to what extent yeah i was i was going to mention that too because there's a lot of debate in the academic communities about first of all what are mirror neurons and secondly do they actually do anything? My understanding of mirror neurons is that um, some people debate, first of all, whether or not they exist. Um, but the idea is that there are neurons um, that sort of mirror Im uh, behaviors that we are observing rather than necessarily engaging in. And that these, this, this is a neurological basis for how we are able to maybe empathize or understand or take perspectives or utilize our theory of mind. Um, when observing another intelligent being or even an unintelligent being, it's just something happening. That's right. And it, it does seem that the mirror neurons are helping us with understanding fiction as well. Um, mm -hmm. That is, we read about someone who is performing a certain action and parts of our brain apparently are, are uh, thinking that we're doing the same thing as well. Mm -hmm. And that's the coolest part for me about cognitive literary studies is that we're, we're talking about fiction in a lot of these cases, not in all of them, of course, but with fiction, these are people, these are minds, ideas, worlds that do not exist in the real world. However, we can still feel every single range of emotion that we could feel in the real world, and in many cases to a much deeper and more exciting degree than, than in the real world. So, yeah, you're right, Tyler. Without really thinking anything about it, we as readers take on the perspective of the fictional other really just as easily or maybe more easily than we do when a person is telling us a story in real life. That's very interesting. I think really all narrative fiction requires perspective taking by the reader or, or the listener or viewer. Um, there, if there's a first-person narrator, we'll naturally take their perspective as they tell the story. We see the story world through their eyes, so to speak. But even if the narrator is a third-person one, we might shift our own perspective back and forth then between that of the narrator and that of uh, characters whose points of views are, are being represented through dialogue or description. Some of the descriptions or of action or of settings in fiction are really so detailed that as readers we can envision everything clearly, we, perhaps just as the author intended us to, but from whose point of view is that? And usually it's assumed that we're seeing things from the narrator's point of view, regardless of whether that's a first or third person standpoint. I think we can go further with this connection of perspective taken to literary studies. Those of us who are liter literature scholars like you and I, we start to analyze the intentions of the authors as well. So why did a writer choose to make a character a certain way? And how did the writer's life experiences shape their writing? So we're trying to take the perspective of the, the author. Um, to what extent did the writer, too, need to take the perspective of a, theory, a theoretical reader in order to make the book more interesting or relevant or exciting? So intriguing questions that are not always answerable. But mm -hmm. they keep us coming back for more, right? And they remind us of how universal cognitive processes connect, connect humans at all levels of reception and production of literature and, and other artworks. Yeah, and I think you, you, you've kind of hit on something really fundamental about this, is that you mentioned as literary scholars, we're intentionally sitting down and saying, okay, what is this perspective? What does it have to do with this other perspective? What is the writer's versus the ideal reader versus my reader versus this character versus all of these other perspectives? However, does that mean that a person who walks into a bookstore and grabs a book needs to have a background in, in studying literature in order to take someone's perspective? Definitely not, and I think that's because perspective taking is just such a natural process for us. And I think like many cognitive processes, once we get past a certain social developmental stage, it's, it just 
happens quite naturally. It's, um, you know, just part of our social skills repertoire, and uh, we don't really need to think about it. And like with empathy, some people are better at perspective taking than others, and, uh, and there are times when we do become conscious of perspective taking. For example, when we realize in our everyday lives that in order to come to an agreement with someone, we have to first see things through their point of view, what are their intentions and motivations, and how do ours intersect mm -hmm. with, with our own. And sometimes it takes a really conscious effort to think that out. But it, for the most part, this is just something that's beneath the surface. It's just what we do, and, and we continue to do, to do it when we're reading fiction as well. That reminds me, too, of one of my favorite articles on the matter um, by Barbara Traversky and Bridget uh, Martin-Hard. Um, this is an article that they published in the journal Cognition in 2009 um, titled Embodied and Disembodied Cognition, Spatial Perspective Taking. So this is a study in which, um, it, it, it's actually two studies, two experiments that they put together, um, the second one based off of the results of the first one, in which they presented a few hundred people with one of a series of photographs. In every photograph, there was a bottle of water on a table and a book also on that same table. It's very difficult for me to describe this photo without assuming a perspective, so I'm <laughs> trying to, to use a very neutral way of describing yes. uh, this photo. And then opposite the viewer of the photo, there's a man that is facing both the bottle of water and, and the book in two of the three photos. This is in the first experiment. So in one of the photos, there's not a man. In the second and third photos, there is a man. And in the second photo, the man is looking at the book, and in the third one, he has a hand extended towards the book as if he were reaching for the book. So what they did was just ask people to describe the location of the book relative to the water bottle. And it turns out the presence of the other human in the photographs affected people's responses. A quarter of people in this first one, when they were asked, where's the book relative to the bottle, said on the man's left, or it's next to the man's hand, or something along those lines naturally assuming the perspective of the man rather than the self. This is not what they saw in the groups of people who were presented with a photograph that didn't have the man in it. Almost everybody said, it's to the right. They assumed what, is, what they referred to as an egocentric perspective, meaning I'm the center, so everything is relative to me. So this is an egocentric perspective as opposed to an allocentric, which is taking a different point of reference, something in the environment that is not the self. So then the question that, that they were asking was, why would these people assume that other perspective? Because in theory, it would be cognitively more demanding to assume a different perspective and inverse the left and right. So then they thought, well, it kind of looks like, you know, he's reaching for it in this one photo and maybe his gaze towards the book is the same as physically putting a hand out and reaching towards the book. So in both of these cases, he looked like he maybe wanted the book. Mm -hmm. So they may or may not have been associating the location of the book with an action of that man. Mm -hmm. So in order to test this question about whether or not the, the implication of action is a factor in assuming the perspective of this other person, um, they, they took the same photograph from before with a man reaching towards an object on the table, and they phrased the question in four different ways. In relation to the bottle, where does he place the book? In relation to the bottle, where is the book placed? Now, these two questions are action questions, right? So we're talking about a book is being placed somewhere. Then the other two questions implied no action, and they're, they're static. In relation to the bottle, where is his book? And in relation to the bottle, where is the book? 
what they found was that calling attention to the action definitely increased the frequency of adopting another's perspective, but calling attention to the person himself did not. So action here is definitely a much more determining factor in assuming someone else's perspective. Um, again, this is this is from the journal Cognition, so it's about you know how people think about other people, social cognition in right. this case. Mm-hmm. Um, we can bring this back to fiction very easily because fiction, and we're talking about historical film, or we're talking about a book, we're talking about a TV series, we're talking about a poem that tells a story. Um, anything, th- th- these are actions, right? We're, we're talking about people and things in action. There's narration, there's stuff going on. So this gives readers, this gives viewers a perspective that's easier to assume mm-hmm. because of the presence of action and because that's also, it seems to be the only point of reference that a reader or a viewer could assume. Mm-hmm. I agree, Tyler. I, I think the most important implications for the study is in the general discussion section, uh, namely perspective taking is imperative for social interaction. And so the participants in the study weren't actually communicating with anyone besides the researcher. So it was really an unnatural situation, and they were writing their answers and not speaking mm-hmm. to him or her. But the fact that their answer differed depending on whether a human was present in the picture tells us, again, that the presence of others impacts how we view our surroundings and um, that the egocentric perspective may not actually be the dominant one for humans. And that's encouraging, mm-hmm. um, even if in everyday life we still seem to encounter Absolutely. Uh, you know, situations in which many people don't see see things eye to eye, but um, but nevertheless. And, and this also, when it comes back to film analysis, makes us think about what difference it might make to a viewer's perspective taking whether a scene has humans in it or not, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, really fascinating questions that would require more exploration. But it also all comes back to embodied experience and the fact that surroundings make a big difference in how we actually see the world and how we're thinking. Okay, so we, we've talked kind of about the theory quite a bit here. Um, and, and what it means. We've looked at some empirical results. We've looked at some theoretical implications. Um, what does this look like to the reader? So wh- what examples can you think of maybe in German literature um, or pop- popular culture, anything anything you can think of? Okay, yeah, sure. I've written an essay, for example, on the narrative technique of free indirect discourse um, mm-hmm. in, in the so-called mind's eye in a German language novel called Nachwelt um, by Marlene Strehobitz. So free indirect discourse is when and usually a third-person narrator switches perspective and poses questions or commentary in, that are then from the perspective of a character while staying in the third person and, and without using quotation marks. It's not, not dialogue. So an example would be something like, she walked down the dark hallway. What was she doing here? The question, what was she doing here, is something that readers will generally assume to be from the point of view of the character. The narrator is suddenly in the head of that character and then, in a sense, is reporting on that experience. So when I wrote that essay about 10 years ago, I was thinking about the issue more in terms of theory of mind, but I really see now it's actually all about perspective-taking and that aspect, and in, in both the narrator and the reader are switching their perspectives to that of a particular character. I find it fascinating, and again, it's something that readers aren't thinking about as they read. They simply do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just part of our, part of our cognitive mechanism. And then, more so than literature, I've looked at perspective-taking in relation to film. And so you mentioned the chapter of my, my most recent monograph uh, about perspective-taking. And, and I use popular German movies of the 21st century to support my argument about how historical film encourages viewers to take the perspective of people from a different time and place, people not in their in-group. 
And this ideally increases then our understanding about not only particular historical events and circumstances, but also about people from cultural contexts different from our own. And in the end, we see they're different from us on the surface, but we're all humans with many of the same traits and fears and, and motivations. And so then I try to use some of the research on um, increases in pro-social behavior um, based on empathy, empathic responses uh, to argue that popular culture actually, although it gets a bad rap, it can be potentially beneficial to society. And For my listeners who don't know, I'm in contemporary Spanish literature, so I'm not super familiar with, with German film. Um, however, um, in speaking of pop culture, um, are you familiar with The Boy in the Striped Pajamas? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so obviously it's a, it's a movie based off of a book um, by, the, by the same name by, by John Boyne. Just by the title alone, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, um, we know that this is a Holocaust-era movie, and it is very, very emotional and very difficult to watch. Yes. Um, and and I'm, in this case, I'm referring specifically to the movie. Um, we are assuming the perspective of a child just in hearing the title, because we can we can look at the cover art and we can see a child sitting on the ground um, with a barbed wire fence separating him and what is clearly a, a child in a concentration camp yeah. um, with a striped concentration camp uniform on. Um, so by saying the boy in the striped pajamas, we're automatically assuming this, this sort of juvenile, innocent mind frame, while at the same time distinguishing that from our current, more informed, more adult mindset. And, and this is getting a lot into theory of mind as well a little bit, because, uh, I mean, we've talked about how it's, it's difficult to, to truly separate theory of mind and, and perspective taking. Um, none of those characters, are, I would say, are in my in-group, um, fully, I can still empathize and I can still assume the perspective of everybody there and still also maintain my own perspective of what's going on. That's right, yeah. Right. And a lot of that is filmmaker intention and they mm-hmm. they, they encourage that kind of perspective taking and that um, kind of empathy through specific camera angles or other... In my book, I mention many films that actually encourage empathy for the perpetrator. So we're actually mm-hmm. not empathizing with as much with a mother who loses her son, but rather with the Nazis themselves in some cases. Mm-hmm. And that's where ethically it gets very interesting to uh, think about our reactions to that empathy. And again, that we're able to put ourselves into the perspective or into the shoes of, of someone who mm-hmm. has done these atrocious things, right? right? Um, in Germany, for example, the film Downfall, which was a, a film about... Hitler's last days in the bunker and it really portrayed Hitler in a very human way. So Hitler is no longer a monster. Hitler mm-hmm. is someone who loves his dog and Hitler is someone who was actually kind to his secretaries and Hitler's a person and Hitler could have been any of us. It's kind of the message that some people would mm-hmm. take away from that and that's of course very controversial especially in Germany. For sure. But it's an excellent example too of how we as, as viewers, we as humans, can take the perspective of anyone. And we can even have empathy for the most evil of people. It doesn't mean we're bad people. It just means we're capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we can use that for good. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And I think that's, that's an important distinction, too, that you made, that we are capable of, of assuming other perspectives. That does not mean that we are necessarily agreeing with those perspectives. Right. And that's an important distinction because uh, you, you said at the beginning this is you know, perspective taking is the ability to understand distinct perspectives of self 
and other. So this is, this is saying, I believe this, and you believe that. And then what we do with that information is, that's up to our own discretion, of course, but that does not necessarily mean I have to adapt permanently this other perspective onto my own. Right. And it could mean that, and it could mean the opposite. It could reaffirm my own perspective, or it could change my own perspective, or it could just do nothing. It could be like, wow, that's interesting, and then you move on with your life. That's right. So then we're talking about all this. Um, perspective-taking literature, what does this mean for the world? What does this mean for readers? What does this mean for scholars? What does this mean for anybody? Well, you know, psychologists talk about the perspective gap, and that's really when people are just unable to take each other's perspectives. And the perspective gap seems to be the underlying cause of most of our misunderstandings and conflict in the world. And, uh, you know, practicing perspective-taking in, in the non-threatening environment of the fictional world can only help to close this perspective gap and, and to bring people closer together with greater understanding of each other. At least that would be the ideal. And I, th I think that's really well said. There's a hypothesis debated amongst scholars called the social improvement hypothesis. Now, the name of that social improvement hypothesis implies certain biases in, in its definition. But the idea is that generally those who read more are typically more open to egalitarian worldviews. Um, they are capable of greater degrees of empathy and understanding. They're better communicators, improves their social skills, um, which can then obviously improve society. So as you mentioned, this is a big problem in politics and, and society where we have uh, we have this big disconnect between what some people experience and what other people perceive and understand and think that they perceive and understand. As you point out, fiction can be a great place to practice this perspective taking. Well, I think when it comes to the perspective gap, Two, one reason I focused on popular film in my book is the fact that I think that medium is something that can reach large groups of people, and for sure, more so than experimental film and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know more elitist type uh, culture. So again, as I argued in my book, popular film, the kind that elicits empathy for people who don't really belong to our usual in group can really reduce our natural bias toward others and, and increase pro-social behavior. And even if we need future studies to really confirm this theory, it, it gives us in the meantime a really good excuse to read more fiction. Absolutely. To go see more movies. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, I, I'm a big fan of the social improvement hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> I am too, for sure. Thank you so much for joining me today on Fiction on the Mind. It was definitely a pleasure having you here. Um, we definitely look forward to, to your future publications and any other work that you might have coming up. Tyler, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's my pleasure. Um, as a reminder to all of the listeners, everything that we've talked about, um, there's, a, there's a bibliography in the show notes if you want to look at all of the, the sources we discussed, as well as a section for further reading for things that we didn't get around to, to discussing. You can check that out at my personal website, rtylergabbard.com or check out your local library, or just hit the internet. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.